0: You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Good morning, you guys. Oh, come on. Come on. Good morning. Let's go. Happy Sunday, Midtown. Yeah. Ah, you guys, it's so, so good to be back with you. I, uh, I missed you people last weekend. Uh, Emily and I, for those of you that don't know, uh, got to travel uh, to Breckenridge, Colorado. We got to escape the heat with her family for a bit. Breckenridge is a little mountain town about an hour and a half west of Denver, and it's up in the mountains. Our Airbnb was at 11,000 feet. So going up the stairs sometimes uh, made a few of us exhausted. Uh, And it had these amazing views, looked out over 14,000-foot peaks. It was picturesque and beautiful. Uh, And we had some time of relaxation while we were there. Uh, It rained a couple of the days, and so we got to sit inside and play some board games and read and just kind of spend time watching the rain. Uh, They they had a hot tub at the uh, Airbnb as well, which, if you know my wife Emily, that's, I think, her second favorite thing in the world. Uh, Her favorite thing starts with a C, so you can obviously guess what that is. It's coffee. It's not me. It's coffee. <laughs> coffee is her favorite thing. I think I'm third on the list right now. depends on how she feels about our dog, Wally. Sometimes he jumps up. I'm trying to work my way up the list of her favorites, but hot tubs and coffee are, are tough to beat, for sure. Uh, so we got some time to relax. We also got some time to adventure. Uh, we did a, an amazing bike ride around this lake called Dillon Lake. It had these rolling hills, and if you got up to the top of the hill, you could kind of ride the hill down at like 20 miles an hour on the bike. So that was really beautiful. Uh, we also went river rafting. And there was an amazing picture that got taken of us when we were river rafting that I felt like I needed to share with you all that was a great summary of our trip. So just to add some context here, uh, I noticed the photographer, mostly because he's pretty obvious standing on the shore, and so I made sure that I was going to stop rowing and just look at the cameraman. So I have given up on the rest of the raft. I don't care what happens in the middle of the rapid. I need to make sure to stare right at him. So I'm, that's what I'm doing. Uh, Emily is right behind me, just having a great old time, smile ear to ear. This is my brother-in-law, Tyler, in the front here. And I think he's the only one that cares about keeping the raft from capsizing (laughs) at this point. He is is locked in on on what's happening. And then my father-in-law is just behind him, Jeff, uh, also grinning from ear to ear. So this picture, I think, is an apt summary of our trip. It was uh, filled with joy and a lot of good family time and the like. Uh, And so I wanted to to make sure to share that with you guys. all that being said, though, this trip wasn't without its blemishes either. The day before we left, uh, we got news from my sister-in-law that she had COVID, and that she and her husband, Emily's brother, Josh, were not going to be able to make it on the trip. And when I heard that, I was like, are you freaking kidding me? We are two years in, and this thing is still ruining stuff. And I know this is like a vacation, which is really like nice, but it's ruined way worse than vacations around the world, right? We can't seem to get away from this stupid disease. And it had me reflecting on just what the last couple years have looked like for so many of us. It's been a brutal stretch. In the last two years, we've seen the worst refugee crisis since the Holocaust happening in the Middle East, in Syria. And in response to that refugee crisis, the U.S. decided to exponentially drop its intake of refugees. That was our country's response to the refugee crisis. There was a locust plague that happened in 2020. You guys remember this? a locust plague in East Africa that ravaged villages and communities and businesses, and governments didn't really do a whole lot to help. There's been racial injustice running rampant all over our country, the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. Those names kind of brought to the surface this division that's been sitting underneath our country for a long, long time. Our elections express that as well, one of the most contentious elections in recent memory. And after the results, there was an actual insurrection in our country, we're supposed to be the harbinger of democracy, and we tried to overthrow our own government, and it's continued like this, even to today. We're in some of the worst economic straits that we've been in in years. And so COVID has been a part of it, but it's been a brutal stretch. We're divided, we're politicized, we're racialized. It's a dumpster fire. There's actually a meme that, uh, that got shared around the internet recently that I had discovered. Uh, it's pretty clever. It has uh, kind of the, the meme text that says, uh, What the last two years would be like if they were a scented candle. And then it's got a bunch of porta potties on fire. That's, that's what the last two years had looked like. And I think that's true. If you put it into a scent, that's what it smelled like. And I've had lots of conversations with people, in the last couple years especially, who have been wondering if this is the worst it's ever been, who've been thinking, I can't remember a time that's been this bad, right? We throw around the word like unprecedented. That's where that word came up for us, because we feel like it's something that's never been experienced. But are these really unprecedented times? Are they really unprecedented times? Because I think a short scan of human history tells us that what we're going through is actually really, really precedent. Governments have always neglected the poor and the needy. It's always happened, for as long as governments have been around. Racism has always been prevalent in every human society we've ever known of. Struggles for power have always been fraught with arrogance and malice and corrupt leaders. Blame shifting and self-righteousness and outrage, those are the norm. That's par for the course in human history. These are precedent at times. And I don't say that to reduce the suffering of our world right now. I think it's really important for us to name what's going wrong now and the ways that we can fix it or can step in and attempt to fix it. It's really important to have the prophetic voice to say, this is wrong and this is what needs to change. That's an important voice. But when we say those sorts of things, we need to be really aware of what's going on underneath the things in our culture. See, the problems we face and the unique suffering that we're going through in our world, those are channels of a deeper problem. The problem in our world isn't simply the liberal agenda or the conservative agenda, though they certainly contribute to the problem. The problem is not social media or the internet alone, though those certainly contribute to the problem. The problem, friends, is that we have forgotten what it means to be human. As Mother Teresa put it, if we have no peace, it's because we've forgotten that we belong to one another. If we have no peace, it's because we've forgotten we belong to one another. You guys, we inhabit a world of unbelonging right now a world where unwanted items and unwanted people are disposed of, are neglected, are overlooked. We live in a throwaway culture. We view one another and other things simply as disposable on the way to accomplishing our own will. And here at Midtown, we believe that that notion of disposability of throwing things or people away is actually the opposite of what it means to be human. We believe that nothing is disposable. When we live our true humanity out, nothing is disposable. And we know that's true because Jesus exemplified it for us. This picture of humanity from Jesus, of sacrificial love and commitment, of being disposed of himself and not letting that disposal win, that's the example we have in Christ. And it's in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and the scriptures that testify to his life, death, and resurrection, that we find wisdom that teaches us how to navigate a disposable world, a throwaway world. And that's actually why we do what we do here at Midtown. That's why the church exists. The church exists to be people who say, I belong to you, and you, and you, and you. The church exists to say, we commit to one another. We don't get to dispose of one another. We covenant together to live differently in a world that's throwing each other away. And that's why we're starting this new sermon series at Midtown. We're calling it non-disposable, resisting a throwaway culture. And each week, we're going to look at a different uh, assumption that our culture lives with. We're going to look at things like pollution culture or hookup culture, ways that we tend to throw others away, to use bodies or things for our purposes. And we're going to see what the scriptures in Jesus uh, say to us in the midst of those things, what wisdom they give us to resist a throwaway and disposable culture. And today, we're looking at A particular cultural assumption that's existed for the last few years, especially. We're gonna look at cancel culture. So if you have a Bible, turn in it with me uh, to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We'll be reading from John 8, starting in verse 1 and reading through verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, uh, let us know. We want to make sure you have a Bible so that you can read with us on Sunday mornings. Uh, We will give you a Bible for free. Uh, We also are going to have the words behind me on the screen if you'd like to follow along. John chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Then each of them went home while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him. And he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up, and he said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 2014, a 30-year-old woman named Justine Sacco was making the long journey from New York to Cape Town, South Africa, to visit her family. Her family had moved to South Africa in order to help fight apartheid there with Nelson Mandela. And she decided uh, that she was going to tweet some jokes out to some friends as she was traveling, because travel can often be a funny thing. The things you see in airports are often pretty funny. And so when she was at uh, JFK Airport in New York, she tweeted these exact words. Weird German dude, you're in first class. It's 2014, get some deodorant. Inner monologue as I inhale BO. Thank God for pharmaceuticals. And then, at her layover in Heathrow in London, she tweeted this. Chili, cucumber sandwiches, bad teeth, back in London. And then, before the final leg from London to Cape Town, she tweeted this. Going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. And then she put her phone on airplane mode for the next 11 hours. And when she turned it off airplane mode after landing, she had a text from her friend, Hannah. Hannah said, you need to call me right now. And when she did, Hannah informed her that Justine Sacco, who had just a couple hundred followers on Twitter before, was the number number one worldwide trend on Twitter. As it turns out, her tweet had been shared and retweeted and reshared tens of thousands of times. And now the internet was a mob ready to condemn her. Stones in hand seeking justice she was shamed as a racist and a bigot she was cursed at by strangers and before she ever had a chance to respond or apologize or clarify she was fired from her job that all happened before her plane landed all of that because of a tweet and we become used to that sort of story in our world That's why many of us have just decided to not really post things on social media anymore, right, when we have interviews for jobs. We know the story of someone who makes a terrible misguided joke or has an old post resurface, or just says the wrong thing in the wrong way at the wrong time, and all of a sudden, well, their world's torn apart. This process is so commonplace in our culture that we actually have a phrase for it, cancel culture. This is something that's come up over and over in our world in the last few years. I've got a, a working definition, just so we're on the same page, about what cancel culture is. Cancel culture is the act of condemning someone or and ostracizing them from a social, political, or professional position of influence because of something they've said or done. Condemning someone and ostracizing them from a social, political, or professional position of influence because of something they've said or done. Cancel culture is, by definition, the disposing of someone else based on what they've said or done. It's a removal of them, a throwing of them away. And to be really clear and fair, the sort of response that cancel culture arises from is actually often a good one. Anger over injustice or longing for accountability. Those are usually the things that fuel cancel culture. Those are good desires, friends. Justine's tweet was, at best, profoundly stupid, and at worst, terribly racist. But either way, anger is the right response. And the Bible affirms that. The Bible says that anger is a good thing. Bet you didn't know that, right? We always think of Jesus as nice, peaceful Jesus, but, well, the scriptures give us a different picture. Paul actually writes about this in the book of Ephesians, and the verse is really hard to interpret, but I think you guys will catch on. This is Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry, Paul says. Be angry. But you notice I have an ellipsis afterward, because the verse continues. Paul says, be angry but do not sin. Be angry at injustice. Be angry at things that go wrong in the world, but do not sin. Friends, the Bible sees anger as a right response to injustice. That is important. It's important for those who are oppressed. It's important for those who are marginalized. It's important to be angry at injustice, but it's also something that can become destructive if we don't keep good tabs on it and if we're not aware of what it can do. Anger, in this way, is very much like fire. Fire, we all know, can be really destructive if it's not channeled correctly. We hear this every year. In northern Arizona, forest fires destroy ecosystems, push people out of their homes. We hear about people who get burned irreparably in their skin. Fire, when it's not channeled rightly, can utterly destroy us, but fire can also cleanse us. It can be restorative. We use fire to cook bacteria out of our food and our water. We use fire to warm ourselves in the winter in our fireplaces and furnaces. We use fire to gather around and enjoy each other's company. Fire, when channeled rightly, can be restorative and healing. And so the question is never, is fire a good thing or a bad thing? The question is, what's the fire being used for? How are we uh, expressing fire? And anger is quite similar. The question is not whether anger is inherently good or bad. The response of anger. The question is not whether it's good or bad. The question is, what makes us angry, and what do we do with our anger? What makes us angry, and what do we do with our anger? And cancel culture provides us one way of dealing with our anger. It attempts to define the other by the worst thing that they've done and then dispose of them, get them out of the picture to completely get rid of them. That's one way of responding to our anger, and it assumes that the other person is disposable. It assumes that the other person is someone that I can just kind of get rid of but that's not an assumption that the scriptures make, and that's not an assumption Jesus makes. In the story we just read, Jesus refuses to dispose of this woman, and he gives us a different way of dealing with our anger over injustice and brokenness. There's three different things that Jesus teaches us here in John chapter 8 about dealing with our anger. He says that in your anger, you've got to have humility, you've got to have grace, and you've got to have restoration as the goal. We practice humility, we practice grace, and we practice restoration as Christians. So it starts with humility. Let's reset the scene real quick. At the start of John chapter 8, we learn that people are huddling around Jesus to listen to him teach in the temple. This is a really intimate space. He doesn't have a microphone like I do, so you've got to kind of be close to hear him. And the temple sometimes is a bustling, loud place, so people are tucked in. It's a tender, intimate way of listening to what Jesus has to say about spirituality, about emotionality. And then the Pharisees bust in. They drag a woman through the crowd. They elbow their way, and they throw her at the feet of Jesus. And they proclaim that this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. And that's an important detail here. She wasn't just accused. She was caught in the act. Do you see what that implies about the condition of the woman, the state of the woman right now? Think about it another way. What's your wardrobe look like when you commit adultery? You're not wearing much. That's how adultery works, right? You're not wearing much. She's been dragged through the streets, naked or nearly naked, by the most holy people of her culture. She's been cast at the feet of a holy man in a holy place, and she's utterly ashamed. Utterly broken. And As it turns out, these are really corrupt men who are shaming this woman. She's doing her best to cover up, especially in a culture where to be exposed in any way is shameful. The scene is tense and incredibly vulnerable here. And then the Pharisees speak. In law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They ask Jesus. And at first, first glance, it seems like the Pharisees are pursuing justice rightly. It seems like they're pursuing the right thing in the right way, right? They're here because this woman did something egregious and immoral, and they're ready to literally cancel her, to get rid of her. But there's a small detail that exposes them as frauds here. It's not explicit in the text, it's implicit, but you may have caught caught it. Who's missing from the story? Who? The The man. The man is missing from the story. Adultery is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. Takes two to tango, so where's the dude, right? Levitical law said that in cases of adultery both the man and the woman had to be present if that case was to be heard. And so they're not looking for justice. They're fronting like they're looking for justice, but there's something going on other than justice in their motivations. We learn they're trying to trap Jesus, and we learn they're trying to cancel this woman. And it's interesting, because the trap that they set for Jesus doesn't allow him to answer this question simply. If he says yes, stone her, he's in trouble, and if he says no, stone her, he's in trouble. If he says yes, then he's performing malpractice of the Old Testament law because the man is not present. And some scholars have thought that in order for Jews to actually kind of uh, carry out capital punishment in that time, they had to go to Roman authorities first and get permission. And so if he advocates for the stoning of this woman, he's actually undermining the Roman authorities. So they could just drag him to Rome and say, well, you can take care of him. So if he says yes, he's in trouble. But if he says no, he's in trouble too because well, then he's saying that adultery doesn't matter and that the law doesn't really matter. And so Jesus, caught in this trap and being the brilliant and articulate man that he is, does something that I need to learn to do way more often. He says nothing. <laughs> nothing. And instead, he bends down and starts doodling in the dust of the temple. And it doesn't explicitly say what he's drawing. Scholars have speculated what it might be. It might be that he's just drawn pictures, Uh, There's one commentator that actually makes a connection between the finger of Jesus writing in the ground and the finger of Yahweh that gave the law to the Israelites in Exodus. So some people have said that he might actually be writing some of the Ten Commandments or the Old Testament law in the dust of the ground. And so everyone is just kind of watching, like, why is Jesus not responding? And the Pharisees continue to press in on him. They demand an answer, and finally he stands up and says these profound words. Let any among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he just leaves that and bends down and keeps writing. And you can imagine a hush fall over the crowd. People start whispering. Did you hear what he said? What are the Pharisees going to do in response? And the Pharisees are just standing there, stones in hand. And all of a sudden whether it's because they've noticed the law that Jesus is maybe writing in the dust, or whether their consciences are now starting to kick in, they realize they have no place here to actually condemn this woman. They're just as complicit and guilty in breaking the law as she is. One of them might be thinking, earlier this week I, I coveted my neighbor's spouse. And so they drop their stone and walk away. One of them might be saying, you know, there's that homeless man that's just outside my house, and I see him every day, and I've just kept walking on the other side of the street, and I've ignored him. I haven't even made eye contact with him. I've neglected the poor and the needy. And so they drop their stone. And there might even be someone in that crowd right now holding a stone, ready to stone this woman for the very thing that they committed that morning. I slept with my neighbor's spouse today. the stone sort of falls out of their hand, and they back away. The text says, one by one, they walk away, oldest to youngest, which I think is a hilarious little detail. Oldest to youngest, probably because when we get old, we realize how broken we really are, right? The older we get, the more broken we know we are. And then you can imagine like one little kid standing around, Johnny's like, where everybody go? And he just runs away, right? <laughs> Friends, the scribes and the Pharisees are ready to utterly cancel this woman. She's been reduced to the very worst of what she's done. They're ready to dispose of her. And the whole time, they're overlooking that they themselves are just as sinful as her in their own ways. This is self-righteousness on full display. You guys, cancel culture can often be a blaze of self-righteousness. It's not always, but it can often be a blaze of self-righteousness. It willingly condemns our neighbors out of a desire for power and self-elevation. And it can tempt us in our rightful anger over injustice. It can tempt us to dispose of them, to reduce them, to dehumanize them, and to turn them into something that we can throw away. And Jesus' response to the Pharisees here exposes that tendency towards self-righteousness for us and for them. He's reminding us and the Pharisees that in our efforts to stop injustice and harm, brokenness and pain in the world, we have to avoid becoming the very thing we're trying to defeat. We have to avoid becoming the very thing we're trying to defeat, which means anytime we try to condemn brokenness in other people, we have to remember and acknowledge the brokenness that's in us first. As the great philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche put it, in your efforts to defeat the monster, be sure you don't become the monster. The story is reminding us of the crucial nature of humility, that whenever we approach the specks in the eyes of our neighbors, we have to remember the logs that are in our own. Healing will never be accomplished unless everyone acknowledges their complicity in a problem. Healing will never really be accomplished unless everyone acknowledges their complicity in a problem, which means humility is a prerequisite for justice. And that's great. We all love humility. We love humble people. But the reality is, justice still has to be served, right? How do we actually bring about justice? What do we do with the brokenness and pain around us? And that's actually what this final conversation between Jesus and the woman shows us. In order to bring justice, we practice grace, and we practice restoration. So now, all the Pharisees have gone away, and little Johnny has scurried away as well, right? Everyone's gone. It's just Jesus and the woman. And she still, by the way, is in the midst of her brokenness and shame. And this man has sent away all the holy men, so what could he do? He's exponentially more holy than them. And Jesus speaks first. He says, woman, where are they? Who's condemned you? And quivering in her voice, she says, no one, sir. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. You guys, if there was anyone who had a right to condemn this woman, anyone who had the right to cancel this woman, it's Jesus. But he doesn't. Why? Because he knows that the way to heal brokenness is not reducing the one in front of us to the worst of what they are. He knows that the way to heal brokenness is never through self-righteous retribution. See, cancel culture assumes that when we get rid of the other, when we expose the other, then we will cleanse ourselves and our world that getting rid of them will actually bring healing, that it will somehow make up for the wrong that's been done. But that's impossible. You guys, when sin and pain have already been inflicted, there's nothing that can be done to get rid of those things. They've been done. We don't have time machines, and we don't have amnesia that we can just get rid of all the pain and the brokenness. It's there, it's been done. And so the question Jesus wants us to ask is not, what can get rid of all the pain and brokenness? What can cancel it out or make up for it? The question he wants us to ask is, what can heal that brokenness? What can provide us a way through it and to life on the other side of it? And as it turns out, the only possible way to heal brokenness is by extending grace and forgiveness in the midst of the pain and injustice that we felt. And that response of grace, by the way, is not an overlooking of the wrongdoing. It never is. Grace doesn't suddenly say, well, what you did is fine and excusable and we'll get over it. Grace explicitly names the injustice, but then it says, in the midst of the injustice, I refuse to allow this to define our relationship. I refuse to allow this to define what's going on in our world. And I will free you from the chains of the brokenness that you've committed. I will give you liberation from those things. Grace never forgets the injustice, but it removes the the power of the injustice over our lives. There's a, a story uh, of a, a guy named Story. Actually, his name is Bishop Story. He uh, he partnered with Desmond Tutu in South Africa. Desmond Tutu was the Archbishop of South Africa who fought heavily against segregation and genocide during apartheid there. And he tells a story of a church service that he and Desmond were hosting, and that church service uh, was integrated, which means white and black people were allowed to come together to worship. And the government got wind of this and didn't like it. They told them to shut it down, and they said, "No, we won't." So they kept meeting. And eventually, the government sent armed soldiers to kill Desmond Tutu and Bishop Story in the middle of the service. And so these soldiers bust in to the church service. They're waving guns. People are freaking out. And Desmond immediately jumps into action. He walks to the front of the room, slowly, calmly. He picks up a mic, and he giggles. He giggles. And then he said these words to them you've come to join the winning side. Come, sit. We have a place for you. I get chills when I think about that moment. And the soldiers, not knowing what else to do, sat down, because what are they going to do, kill that guy? (laughs) They just joined in the worship. And years later, Bishop Story was speaking at a larger speaking engagement. And someone approached him afterwards. The man who approached him said, you probably don't recognize me, but I'm the man that was ordered to murder you and Desmond that day. And I couldn't do it. And I've been following Jesus since. Grace is not passive. Grace is active, friends. Grace is the breaking of the chains that bind us. The breaking of the brokenness that binds us. The cancel culture can never break. Retribution can never break those things. And it works in both directions. When grace gets extended to a perpetrator, their shame over their brokenness gets undone. So it works in that direction, but it also works in the other direction. When grace is extended by a victim, it frees them from bitterness. It frees them from self-righteousness. It frees them from the weight of condemnation of the other person. And this practice assumes the highest possible view of humanity. The highest possible view. Because it says that no matter what you've done, no matter how much of a scumbag you are, I believe that you're never too far gone. And I believe that there's an image of God in you that is worth inviting you into. That that's always true no matter what you've done. And the best example of this in Jesus' ministry was his response to Judas. You guys remember Judas? the one who betrayed Jesus, the reason that Jesus was crucified. Jesus knew he was going to betray him. You know what the last word that Jesus used to describe Judas was? Wasn't backstabber. Wasn't betrayer. It was friend. Friend. Because Jesus had already forgiven Judas for what he was about to do. He had already extended grace to him because he didn't want to be bound by hatred and condemnation. He did not want to be bound by the chains of what Judas Judas was about to do. And whether or not Judas accepts that grace or not is a different story, but Jesus made sure to extend it regardless. Friends, every human is an image-bearer of God made for full and free and true life, and that means we always hold out hope for them. And that leads us to the final thing that Jesus teaches us to practice in this passage. Restoration. Look at his final words to the woman. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. Now notice, Jesus is not excusing her actions. He's not excusing adultery. He knows it's wrong. And he's naming it as wrong. He's calling it a sin. But rather than canceling her, he's inviting her into living a different sort of life. And that's the crucial difference between cancel culture and Christ's culture. In cancel culture seeks retribution in its anger. Christ's culture seeks restoration in its anger. One is a raging fire, and the other is a righteous cleansing fire. By refusing to condemn the woman and instead inviting her in a new sort of life, Jesus is affirming that she has dignity beyond even the worst thing that she's done. You guys, Christians are always concerned with justice, or should be. Racism, wrong, misogyny, wrong, envy, adultery, murder, pride, all wrong. But we fight those things with a different sort of fire than the world around us. We fight those things with a fire of restoration, not of retribution. And the fire of restoration actually has the power to win over the very people who have perpetrated injustice. It actually has the power to bring them into the project of a different sort of world. Jesus exemplifies this in his ministry as well. You guys might remember the story of Zacchaeus. Or at least you might remember the song that you sang as a child, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Tobin knows. Tobin knows in the back. (laughs) The story of Zacchaeus, Jesus is traveling through a town called Jericho. And Zacchaeus lives in Jericho, but he's a wee little man. He's short. And so in order to see Jesus over the crowds, he has to climb up into a tree and look down on Jesus. And when he does that, Jesus notices him and says, Zacchaeus! Come down. We're having dinner at your place tonight. Now, in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, to have a meal with someone was to affirm them in some way or another. It was a mode of intimacy, sharing a meal with someone. And Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He was a fraudster, huckster. He was a terrible human being. He was hated by everybody. Everybody wanted to cancel Zacchaeus. But Jesus says, I'm going to extend him grace. I'm going to share a meal with him. And Zacchaeus' response was to climb down from that tree and immediately promise to give away half of what he had because he experienced grace in a way he had never experienced it before. And then, after that, he said, anyone that I've defrauded, I will pay back four times what I've defrauded them. That's called restitution, reparation. You guys, Jesus didn't overlook Zacchaeus' blatant sin of defrauding people and overlooking and oppressing the poor. He extended grace to him and provided a pathway to restoration. And that is what prompted Zacchaeus to be restored. That's what prompted him to change his life. That's what the fire of restoration does. When others opposed the raising up of the poor beyond their social station, it was the fire of restoration that prompted George Mueller to create an orphanage for 10,000 British children. When Britain was in the midst of oppressing millions of black people around the world, it was the fire of restoration that led William Wilberforce to reform the slave trade in Great Britain. When a multitude of churches in our world condemn women who are in hard situations, it's the fire of restoration that leads Tammy Abernathy here at Hope Women's Center to welcome those women and love them. That's what restoration does, it doesn't cancel. It practices humility. It practices grace. It practices restoration. And more important than any of that, it was the fire of restoration that led Jesus Christ to the cross for every person in this room and every person outside this room. He refused to condemn this world. God refused to cancel us. In God's eyes, no one and no thing is disposable. And now we as the church get to embody the same sort of fire. We practice humility. We remember the logs in our own eyes. We practice grace, removing the chains that bind us to the brokenness in our world. And we practice restoration, inviting people into a new sort of life on the other side of their brokenness. That's what it means to be a part of this church, to commit to belonging to one another and then saying to the world, you belong as well. There's an image of God that you're made for that's powerful, that's good, that's holy. You guys, cancel culture can't solve our brokenness, but Christ's culture can. And so let's be a community that's committed to the latter. Let's be a community of non-disposable people proclaiming a non-disposable message to the disposable Let's pray, friends.